with our text this morning being Romans 2, verses 17 through 24. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhors idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would use your word this morning. That it would not just be something we hear and acknowledge, but that it would take deep root in our hearts that you would use it by the power of your Holy Spirit to make us more and more into the image of Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Perhaps the most effective criticism that people make against the church is that it is a place filled with hypocrites. Maybe you've had this experience, you've tried to get a, a friend or a co-worker or a family member to come with you to church and they look at you and say, oh, I want no part of church. The church is just a bunch of hypocrites. And I think there's a very real sense in which that's true, especially if you define a hypocrite as someone who ever does anything other than what God commands. If you're looking for a church that has no hypocrites in it at all, I'll save you some time. You won't find one. And if, by some near miracle you do, as soon as you join, it won't be a hypocrite-less church anymore. So, Paul is dealing with this this morning in this section of Romans 2. He's dealing with hypocrisy and how hypocrisy can keep us from the gospel of grace. Paul has been busy in Romans 1 and 2 stripping away every excuse that anyone might have to the gospel. Paul has said over and over again that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That Jesus is declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. And that this gospel of salvation is available for everyone. The problem is, is that we live in a world where people say, no thank you Paul, I'm not interested. It's almost like the way people treat the gospel is the way you and I treat telemarketers that call us unannounced. You know, it used to be 
that when you had a landline, people would call you and bother you during dinner. Now have you noticed there's been a shift in the last year or two? I'm constantly getting telemarketing calls on my cell phone. Now when you're a pastor and someone calls and you don't recognize the number, you answer. Because you don't know if it could be an emergency. And someone's trying to sell me a car or a yard service or painting or something. And my usual response is, no thank you, already got one. Sometimes it's not even a real person. It's just a recording and I can't even say no thank you. I just have to hang up on them. Now, I want you to think about that as the way that most people in the world treat the gospel. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, somebody might need siding, but not me. Somebody might need new windows, but, but, but not me. Go, go visit my neighbor down the street. Uh, you know, Jesus is good and all, but you might want to go down to the other side of town. Uh, I'm all set. And what Paul is doing here is stripping away every excuse we have to say we don't need Jesus. Now, why is Paul doing this? Is he doing this to be cruel? Is he just trying to show everyone how horrible they are? Is Paul's intent this morning that I convince you all that you're horrible hypocrites beyond the reach of grace? No. Paul's intention is that you might know that you, no matter how long you have professed Christ, you need Jesus today. You cannot get away from that truth. And so this morning I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, we will see an hypocrisy of mind, a way of thinking that's hypocritical. Next, we will see an hypocrisy of life, the way people live in a way that is hypocritical. And then third, we will see why it is so important for us to understand this, because we live before a watching world. Hypocrisy of mind, hypocrisy of life, and before a watching world. Well, Paul has moved from those who were suppressing the knowledge of God, to those who were trying to live a moral life and thought that made them good enough before God. But now he is aiming squarely at those who believe that their religion gives them an excuse when they stand before God. He's speaking directly at the Jews. And not just any Jews, but to their committed Religious Jews. And there's an immediate application here to me and to you. Paul is showing that the gospel is for conservative church members. That's who the gospel is for. And the thing is, the world has become such a place of us versus them that we fail to look at ourselves. We fail to look at our own need for the gospel because we're so busy fighting others. And so what Paul shows us here first from this text is an hypocrisy of the mind. Now, by this I do not mean that people are believing false things. No, actually what they are believing are true things. What Paul is talking about here is knowing the truth but not being changed by the truth. And so Paul begins by listing four advantages that the religious people of his day believed they had and believed that it made them different from everyone else in the world. Look with me at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God 
and know his will and approve what is excellent, Paul says. He's getting the attention of the religious people of his day. And so the problem here is not that these things are untrue. The problem is not that these things are not a blessing to people. The problem is in taking these advantages that Paul is talking about and believing that we have earned them, that we deserve them, that God loves us because of what we have done to possess these things. You have to understand that the purpose of all these statements is to boast, to take confidence in these advantages. And so Paul begins with this. He says, you call yourself a Jew. Now, in this context, this is much more than an ethnic designation. This refers to the unique relationship that the Jews had with God because they were chosen by God. What the Jews would say is, God has chosen us out of all of the nations. We don't need this gospel. We have everything we need. God has already chosen us. He has to love us. Look at how good we are. God chose us because of who we are. Now this is a clear misunderstanding of the doctrine of election. And this is why this is important for you and for me here today. As we sit here in a Reformed church, we are good Westminsterian Calvinists, we say that God chooses those whom He will save, that it is all of God. And yet the temptation can come to us to make election turn around, not to be God chose us in spite of who we were, but God chose us because of who we were. We're just a little bit smarter than other people. We're just a little bit snappier dresses. We just have more Bibles in our home than other people. We're just a little bit better off. And of course God would choose us. Because, well look at us. We're a bunch of good people here, right? Paul is preaching to us here. After all, you are all here in church, aren't you? You're not out on the golf course. You're not at the mall. You're not asleep in bed. Paul is directing this word at those whom God has called to himself. When in reality, election is about the lack of worth. The Bible tells us that God chose Israel because she was the least of the nations, not the greatest. And if we're not careful, we can fall victim to the same kind of thinking. Do we rest in election because we think we are so special that God had to love us? Or does election do what it should do as a doctrine? Does it drive us to Jesus Christ because we know we are completely unworthy? That as we stand before God, we are undone. And there is no reason, as God sees the real me, not the me that I put on display on Sunday morning, not the me that I put on display at work, That looking at the real me, God would still set his love upon me in Christ. You see, our hope is in Christ. The next point that Paul brings out is, he says, you rely on the law. The Jews would say that they have the law. And after all, this is a very unique thing. Of all the people in all of the world, only the Jews had been given the law of God through Moses. And it didn't stop there. God kept giving them the law through the prophets. But instead of seeing that as giving them greater responsibility, 
the Jews saw that as a sign that they were better than others. They didn't think about the extent of the law and how it showed their failings before a perfect God. Now, once again, this applies to you and me. We live in a world that has forgotten about right and wrong, don't we? It is done away with all standards. And we can think that just because we know the standards, we are right before God. But the truth is, we stand condemned by the strictness of God's law. But that's okay. That's good news. Because the law then drives us to Jesus. Because if we know we cannot stand before the law, if we know the law is beyond our capability of doing anything, we rush to the one who has done. The law reminds us, not of our own merit, but of our need for Jesus. The third thing that Paul says is, you boast in God. Now, at first glance, we would say, Paul, how could this possibly be a bad thing? We should boast in God. After all, Paul, in other letters, you say you'll boast only in the cross and you'll boast in the Lord. How could this be a bad thing? And this is something that had come to Israel out of their exile from Babylon. Babylon had conquered Israel and this had happened because of Israel's idolatry. But the Jews had seen Babylon and had seen her destroyed for her idolatry. And so now they were thankful that they were able to stand around and not be like the other nations. The problem wasn't that they boasted in God. The problem was they were only focused on the knowledge of God. It is one thing to know about God. It is another thing to know God. The first is a prerequisite to the second. But we cannot stop at knowing about God. And so the Jews gathered as much information about God as they could. And they were satisfied with that. They didn't cultivate their relationship with God. And we see this, that when God sent His Son to redeem them from their sins, they rejected Him. Now again, we have to be careful. It is easy to delight in knowing about God, especially in a culture that looks down on theology. Again, as Reformed Presbyterians, we fit right into this mold. Look at our bookshelves. We've got theologian after theologian. Look at all the things that we have learned. We have tapes, we have videos, we have Bible studies. But the question is, Does our theology lead to doxology? Does our knowledge of God lead us to the praise of God? Because you see, that's what theology is for. It is not to learn things. It is to help us to cultivate the relationship with the Lord our God. You know what this is like in everyday life. All of you that are married know what this is like. Every man when he begins to date the woman who was his wife, takes a notebook, either physically or virtually, of everything she does. Her favorite color is red. She likes to eat this. Don't ever order that. She likes to drink this. She likes it hot. She likes it cold. She likes to sit here. She likes to go there, right? We learn everything we can. Why? So that we could pass an exam later on 
my future wife's favorite color? Of course not. It's because we want to cultivate that relationship. At the end of the day, does it matter if her favorite color is red or blue? Of course not. But you learn that to build the relationship. That's what the Jews failed to do. The fourth thing that Paul says is that you know God's will and are spiritually discerning. Now, they thought they didn't need the gospel because they already knew the will of God. The gospel to them might have been for other people who didn't know what God expects or who can't discern right from wrong or who don't have God's word, but but we have that after all. The problem with that is that knowing God's standards and living by them are two different things. In reality, they didn't know God's will because if they did, they would know that God is perfect from Psalm 19 and that His way is perfect from 2 Samuel 22. Jesus warns us exactly against that in Matthew 5 when He says, Therefore, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now in verses 17 and 18, Paul is describing how the religious view themselves as worthy in the context of their relationship with God. But now in verses 19 and 20, he describes how they view themselves in the context of their relationship with the non-religious. And what happens is the religious people of Paul's day were so busy seeing how they were superior to everyone else, to all of the other sinners around them and the culture, that they missed the gospel. This attitude of pride and superiority over their neighbor prevented them from seeing their need for Jesus. And so Paul tells us this. He first uses a pair of phrases in verse 19. He says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Paul uses these phrases to show how the religious thought that they were better because the world needed them. After all, the world is blind without God and without his word. And they're lost and unable to find their way. The world is in darkness and they need a light. And so the Jews rightly saw that God had given them the truth, and that the world needed this truth. The problem was, is that they missed their responsibility to spread that truth. They thought they had worth because they had a truth that other people didn't. Brothers and sisters, when we see the lostness of the world, we cannot be proud that we are not like them. We have to see the obligations that come to us from God. That we have to bring the truth to them. This is the whole point of missions. It's not that we're the best. It's not that we have everything figured out. It is that God has given us this task. In spite of ourselves. And we are to take this truth to a world that needs Jesus. The second thing that Paul says made the Jews proud in the way they related to people was they thought that they were the ones to disciple other people and to reach them and teach them God's will. 
And Paul uses a paraphrases here in verse 20 to describe how the religious thought they were better because they were the best equipped to train other people. He says, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You see, the religious thought that they were the ones to teach those who were without knowledge, those who were foolish. And they were the mature ones who would have to bring up the children around them. They viewed themselves as having arrived. They were the ones that knew what they were doing. And by comparing themselves to other people, they felt superior. And that superiority was grounded in themselves, not in the gifts and blessings of God. Now again, this is a problem. If they truly knew the embodiment of knowledge and truth, they would understand that everything they had was by grace. That God had given to him to them his promises. That he had given to them his word. That he had given his law. Not because of who they were, but in spite of who they were. Now this is again especially tempting for us in the Reformed faith. We study God's word. We love theology. We are equipped to instruct others. And because of this, we can forget the need of God's grace. We can even forget our duty to spread the gospel. Sometimes I think it's an unwritten rule in Reformed churches that our wheelhouse, what we do, is we train other people that others evangelize. We don't want to be bothered with the simple gospel because, look, our doctrine of the Trinity is the best. Our doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the best. You want to know about the substitutionary atonement? Just come ask us. We got it all laid out from first to eighth. And so maybe other people can share the gospel and get people to believe in Jesus. But once they do, bring them to us because we'll make sure they don't get messed up. Sometimes that can be our attitude. Now, Hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't disciple. We should. I'm not saying we shouldn't study theology. We should. But we shouldn't act as if we are a gift to God because of who we are, because of what we know. That is the problem. It can cause us to waver from the truth. Paul then moves to our second point, to what the life of the religious looks like. Now, he's not satisfied just to uncover their thinking. It's, this is because thinking is not the only problem. It's also their life. Now, this is critical for you to pay attention to. Because how you live before other people says more about your heart than the things you say. This is clear from Paul's probing questions. He asked two probing questions, one about each of two aspects of the law. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now, what we have to understand is, he is talking specifically about two areas that the Jews prided themselves on. If you ask the Jews to rank all of the Ten Commandments by which ones they were able to keep best, right at the top of the list would be 
Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. And number eight, you shall not steal. They might admit that sometimes they don't say things properly and maybe they bear false witness. Or maybe they do some work they shouldn't on the Lord's day. But these two, they got. And so you see, Paul is using this as an example. He's striking them at their strongest point. You know, we often hear in arguments that people use a straw man argument. They build up an an intentionally weak point so they can knock it down. Not Paul. Paul takes the strongest point possible and he presses home against it. And so he essentially says, do you practice what you preach? He says, you warn against stealing, but do you steal? Now, once again, we have to remember the depth and the breadth of the law. What Paul is saying here is, I'm not asking you if you break into your neighbor's home and take his TV. What I'm asking you is, Do you work hard all the time at work when your employer is paying you? Do you use just scales when you sell things? Do you borrow things and forget to return them? You see, Paul is trying to prove to the religious that the depth and breadth of the law shows that we are lost before God. He then begins to speak about adultery. He says, do you do that? Again, this is something that the religious of Paul's day and of our day think they've got under control. But again, we need to probe to the depth of the law as Jesus expands in the Sermon on the Mount. Paul's not just asking if you've had an affair. He says, what are you thinking? What are you watching on TV and on film? What kind of music do you listen to? What lyrics are in the music? What do you glamorize in our culture? What do you think about other people? You see, when we start to look at the law in that sense, once again, we can't say, oh, we we know what we're doing. Our lives are perfect before others. To forget that we are held to the same standards that we put up for others is to think that we have no need for grace. We think we have no need for Jesus. No need for his sacrifice. No need for forgiveness. Because, after all, we've got it all together. But there's more. Because when we do that, the world looks at us and sees that they have no need for Jesus. The Jesus we preach, if he makes no difference in our lives, why would anyone bother? Why would someone follow Jesus if he makes no difference in your life? Now, it's like this. You all know how mechanically inclined I am, so take that and just forget about that for the moment. If I said to you, you know, in order to take care of your car, you need to change your oil every 3,000 miles on the dot. Don't fail. If you do, you never know what's going to happen to your engine. It could probably blow up. You're going to lose your car. You certainly won't get the mileage you need to out of your car. And if you said to me, Okay, Fred, when was the last time you changed your oil? And I said, oh, I don't know, 25, 30,000 miles ago. You'd say, wait a minute here. Why should I listen to a word you just said? You don't do anything that you're just telling me I have to do. What you're saying must be untrue. Now, I want you to notice what I said wasn't untrue. 
It is true you should, generally speaking, change your oil every 3,000 miles. But just because it's true, my life can make it look false. And this is true of the believer. Paul next shows that hypocrisy affects not just how we relate to fellow people, but how we relate to God when we live before God. And he uses two phrases again at the end of verse 22 and in verse 23. He says, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Now, he is talking to the Jews who have an absolute hatred for idols. This would have been completely shocking. The Jews could have expected criticism about any number of things, but not about idolatry. Because if there was one thing they finally got into their thick heads, it was, you don't worship idols. Two generations of captivity in Babylon had beaten that out of them. All up until the point of the exile, they had had difficulties worshipping Baal, worshipping Ashtoreth, going after foreign gods. It was why God sent them into exile. But once they came back from exile, they never set up high places again. They never worshipped the Baals. They had learned their lesson, so to speak. And so, what is Paul doing here, criticizing them on this point? What he's saying is, is that the way that they view God is lost in their life. That is, that they're not just, they may be formally worshiping God, but the rest of their life is given to the love of other things. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, our hearts are factories of idols. Constantly putting out idols. And it doesn't have to be a totem pole. It doesn't have to be an altar. It could be children. It could be a vacation. It could be a dream job. It could be a dream house. We see these things as things we have to have, otherwise we'll never be happy. The problem is, there's only one object for that kind of desire. And it's God. It is only without God that we can never be happy. We can be happy with all kinds of houses, all kinds of cars, all kinds of jobs, all kinds of family sizes. But we can never be happy without God. And to to deny that is idolatry, Paul says. Second, he shows about how their morality dishonors God. He says, how you live your life affects your relationship with God. Perhaps better to put it this way. It shows the reality, or not, of the relationship that someone has with God. Let me illustrate it this way. If you want to know about my relationship with my wife, what will you do? You will watch me and see how I treat her how I speak to her, what I do for her. You will very quickly see whether that relationship is strong or not by my actions, much more so than by my words. This is exactly the case with our relationship with God. Now, I want you to notice what Paul does not say. He does not say here 
you know, religious people, you're all wet. Don't you know every road leads to God? Why do you get all hung up on this law and all these rules? Don't you know it doesn't really matter? Just do what makes you happy. This is the answer of the world. You see, the world will tell you you're a hypocrite, and then the solution for your hypocrisy is to act like nothing matters and nobody cares. That's exactly not what Paul is doing. Everything that Paul is saying is true. What he's saying is you need to be consistent and it needs to be from the heart and you need to understand that you can't accomplish it outside of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He's calling out the hypocrisy of the religious. They are right in everything they believe. But it is not enough, beloved, to know the right things. What we know has to affect our hearts, our lives, our very inner being. Well, Paul concludes here by reminding us why this is so important. It's because we live before a watching world. In verse 24, he tells us how our hypocrisy goes beyond us. It is bad enough that if we live lives that are hypocritical, we can become blind to the gospel. But beyond that, we become living barriers to the gospel. He says, for as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now think about why Israel was called and set apart. Go all the way back to Genesis, to Genesis chapter 12, to the beginning. Abraham was called out of Ur so that he would be what? A blessing to the nations. Israel was to be a shining example, the place where God's name dwelt. Jesus gives us this same principle. We as his people are to be a city on a hill, to be a light not under a basket that is not hidden. Now why is this the case? What happens is when professing believers live in contradiction to their profession, they show the worthlessness of that profession. How important could something be if I ignore it? How can it be true if I deny it by my actions? Church of Jesus Christ, the greatest barrier to the gospel today is not Hollywood. It is not gay marriage. It is not a culture full of sin. The greatest barrier to the gospel is nominal, hypocritical Christianity. It is Christians who claim to believe in Jesus, but who will not follow him. Now that makes it real for you and me today. Because we can't hope to change the culture. We don't own the entertainment industry. We can't change all of our laws. But you can look at your own life. And you can see if you are living in accord with your profession of faith. So what do we do? If we're honest with ourselves, we see our hypocrisy. We know that we don't have it all together. We know we need the grace of God just to make it through a single day. The very first thing we must understand is that we are witnesses for Jesus. Now, understand this. The Bible never calls you to be a witness for Jesus. 
It never says, be a witness. Have you noticed that? What the Bible says is, you are a witness. It doesn't call you to witness. You already are. You could be a good witness or you could be a bad witness. But you are a witness if you profess faith in Christ. That's what Jesus says in Acts 1. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, etc. There are only two types of people in the world. Hypocrites who don't know that they are. And hypocrites who know that they are and know that they need Christ. The answer today is not to straighten up and do better. It's not even to practice what you preach. You can't. The answer is to repent and to go to Jesus. He's there for hypocrites. He won't turn you away. He is the only hope for sinners. You cannot work your sin away. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is always the answer for sin. He is the way to tear down the barriers to the gospel that exist and the barriers that we build. The solution is to run to Jesus. Paul tells us that all of us need the gospel. We need Jesus. Trust in Him alone today. Let's pray.